Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. As we make our way through this series of Psalms in which I am hopefully teaching you some of the principles by which we build a spiritual legacy, I have come to the 24th Psalm. Let me lay out for you the legacy principle And then we'll take this psalm and try to apply it to where we are here today. I want my children and my grandchildren to know that their purpose in life has already been determined. And that is that they may increasingly discover how to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Uh, I consider it a real privilege to minister the word to you. And I consider it a sacred honor that you sit there and listen to it, that you've taken your time to be here today to hear what God has to say. But one thing I am sure of about every single one of you, there is something about every single one of you I know is absolutely true. I know your purpose in life. Beyond any shadow of a doubt, I can tell you if you know Christ today, I already know what your purpose in life is. There are so many false premises out there that have made their way into our thinking. Even in our church and churches like ours, there are people who have bought into some of the serious lies that are out there concerning what man is and what man is supposed to be. Let me throw a few of them out to you and you tell me if you can find any biblical basis for any of these. Let me give you one that's very, very prevalent. Be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Now our high school kids and college kids are being taught that at just about every grade level. From Sesame Street on to the college campus, we are hearing that mantra again and again, Be true to yourself. Yet there is nothing at all biblical about that. There is nothing at all in scripture that teaches us anything about being true to ourselves. In fact, what the Bible does teach us is the true nature of ourselves. And if you are going to be true to the true nature of yourself, then you and I would be living lives lives of deception and immorality and fallenness because that is how the scripture describes the human quote self. Or consider this one. You cannot love others until you first learn to love yourself. You cannot love others until you first learn to love yourself. Yet the Bible describes love for us as that which comes from God. And that knowing God means that you know what the definition of love is. There is only one true definition of love, and that is defined as God's love. So if you do not know the love of God, how can you truly love another human being? 
Truly love that human being as God desires for you to love him. And if you have yet to discover God's love in your own heart, how then can you love them, other people, through the eyes of Christ, unless you have first experienced it? Or here's one, it's one of my favorites. You must believe in the great human potential. That inside all of us, there is this enormous human potential. We just have to dig down deep inside and find it and pull it out and then we're going to find purpose in life. What we fail to understand is that the scripture also teaches us that deep down within each of us is an inordinate capacity to do differing degrees of evil. In other words, as I've told you before from this pulpit, none of us are really fully knowledgeable and cognizant of how much evil we are capable of doing. There are things that I know you have said that I have said uh, that I would look at certain situations and I would say I would never do something like that. And then sure enough, I turn around and do exactly that. Wondering how in the world did I get that low? So let's quit talking about the great human potential. Or here's another one. Do what you think is right. Do what you think is right. And this moral relativism has inculcated our society so much that we don't know what's right anymore. We call wrong right and we call right wrong because everybody's making up their own minds as to what's right and what's wrong. And so on and on the list goes, we have these mantras, many of which were birthed in the 60s, these mantras that continue to promote this idea of self-image and loving yourself and human potential and you are God and I am God and we are God. But does the Bible have anything to say as to whether or not you can clearly identify from God's perspective what your purpose is in life? And then to embrace that purpose and to live that purpose. Is there anything we can cling to in the word of God that teaches us that purpose? First, I want to look at the 24th Psalm. And then at the end of this message, I want to look at one further passage, which will prove, I hope to you, that I know your purpose in life and you can know your purpose in life as a Christian. Is there any biblical insight into how you can know the purpose for which God created you. Now, when we come to the 24th Psalm, we have what is called a Torah question. It's raised in the, in the beginning of the Psalm, but it's a messianic Psalm that needs to be interpreted accordingly. You say, well, what do you mean? When, when we read all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament, all of the Word of God, all 66 books, point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all messianic in nature. All of the historical books of the Old Testament, the Torah books, the first five books of the, New, uh, the Old Testament, all of the historical books of Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, all of the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and all of the prophetic books like Isaiah and Hosea and Hezekiah and all those other wonderful uh, prophets of old, the kings of old, all of those men, all of those stories are pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ. What we need to understand is when we pick up the Bible anywhere, there are two ways, two processes you need to go through to find out the meaning of that passage. 
One is what we call the context. Figure out in context what that verse is telling you about the people who read it. What was going on in their life? When we come to Psalm 24, we know that David had taken the Ark of the Covenant out of storage. It had been sinfully stored away as the people of God lost contact with the presence of God. And David, under David's kingship, as he began to reign, he realized that if God was going to truly be worshipped, that ark needed to be present among the people. Because that ark contained the very presence of God where people could worship. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant out of storage. We know that he had a little problem with it at first because he didn't read the directions as to how that Ark is to be carried and some people died as the result. But then finally, he, re he read the directions, he brought the Ark of the Covenant out and the people are celebrating. Now when we read the Septuagint version of this particular Psalm, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, adds a phrase in the inscription or the superscription at the above. It says, a Psalm of David, but then it adds these words. It says, of the first day of the week. In other words, this Psalm was to be sung on the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week or the Sabbath of the Old Testament, but on the eighth day, which we would call the first day of the week, resurrection day. The day that we now call Sunday, the first day of the week. Now it's a Torah psalm in that it raises a question. And the question that's raised in this psalm is who has the right to come in here? Who has the right to come into the presence of the ark? Who has the right to come before the presence of God? Who has the right to ascend to this throne? That's a very good question now, isn't it? Because you see, there were no gates in the Acropolis of Zion, nor were there any everlasting doors to the tabernacle or to the temple, as is spoken of in the seventh through the 10th verse of this hymn. So it has to be speaking of something much bigger than the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. And that's why you need to interpret all of the passages of scripture in a broader context. This is a snapshot prophecy. We call it a messianic psalm because not only do you interpret it within the context of David bringing the ark out of storage, but you also have to interpret it in a broader context is how does this apply to Messiah? This is a messianic psalm. It is a picture, a prophecy, a snapshot of you, if you will, of something concerning Messiah. And it is to be sung on the first day of the week. Now, I think you're beginning to catch maybe some of the flavor of what this psalm is intended to do. It's a psalm that raises a serious question. Who sitting here has the right to enter into the presence of God? Who has that right? This psalm concerns the gospel. Now, let me tell you something about the gospel that far too many of us miss when we talk about, well, what is the gospel? What is the good news? And usually when we speak of the gospel, we speak of the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We say that's the gospel. 
But may I share with you something else? There's a scene in the gospel we're missing. Because when we were commissioned to preach this gospel, 500 people were gathered around Jesus and he was giving the church its marching orders. He was telling the church, this is now what I want you to do. And the Bible tells us that while he was still speaking to them, a cloud took him up out of their sight. We call this the ascension, and I suggest to you that the gospel is not complete unless the ascension occurs. The ascension doesn't occur unless Christ is risen from the dead. The resurrection doesn't occur unless Christ dies. So we speak of the gospel as the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ into glory, because without that ascension, you and I aren't sitting here. The ascension is the scene that is pictured in Psalm 24. Psalm 24 speaks of Christ entering his glory, answering the question of who has the right to come here. And it certainly is a good question, isn't it? We have some vivid scenes that we usually live through at this time of the year. We have the scene of the crucifixion. We see him hanging there on the cross, nails pounded through his hands and feet, the crown on his brow, the blood dripping from his body. It's not a pretty scene. It's a frightening scene. A scene, by the way, parenthetically, that I might tell you as a young child when I was growing up, made a serious impression upon me concerning the love of God. I was fixated with the crucifixion. Even being raised in the Catholic schools and seeing all of that tradition concerning the crucifixion, it always impressed me. It spoke to my heart in such a real way that I, I asked, how could he do that for me? It hurts me to prick my finger with a pin. How much more that pain and that sorrow must have been. And so we look at that scene and we see his mother there and we see John there and we hear the disciples are there, but they're kind of scattered and scared. We look at the soldiers standing there at the foot of the cross. We watch them as they taunt and even fight over his garments and the crowd that goes into Jerusalem mocking him. The thieves on the cross cursing him. Both of them cursing him. One changes his mind because he saw something in Christ and request of him eternal life. We see that horrible scene, the darkness that fell on the earth. The darkness from 9 o'clock in the morning till 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then suddenly it became from 12 until 3 dark and darkness could be felt as even heaven shut its eyes and would not look upon what was taking place there. We watch as they take him down from the cross. They remove the nails and his hands drop down. And they, they remove the nails from his feet and they fall down and the weight of his body comes into somebody's arms. We watch as they take him down into the sepulcher, cut into the side of the earth, and they begin to wrap his body as in Jewish tradition they would. We can almost hear the tears of the women crying and the fear written across the faces of his disciples. We watch as they put him into that tomb and that rock, that two-ton stone, is rolled up an incline and dropped into a slot. We watch those disciples on that in-between day, that Saturday, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We watch them as they sit in the upper room, wondering whether or not they were going to be crucified. 
wondering whether or not they were next. We watch as the women run to the tomb to finish the anointing process, not even reasoning to themselves, how would we get that stone rolled away? Only to find that the stone has already been rolled away and the soldiers were sitting there like dead men. Somewhere between three o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the morning, Christ was risen from the dead. He came out of that grave. He came through the stone. He came through the grave cloths. There was order in his resurrection, not disorder, not chaos, but order as he came through the stone and was raised from the dead. And it was that angel who came and blew that stone away so that we could get in and see that there was order in what he did and purpose in what he did. There's nothing pretty about his death. There's something mysterious and glorious about his resurrection. We watch and we listen as he talks to people along the way, as he ministers to the men on the road to Emmaus who did not even know they were talking with the risen Christ only to discover that sometime later in the day when he offered them bread and they saw the nail prints in his hands and then he disappeared out of their sight. We watch as they mysteriously wondered, who is this? How could this be? We watch as John and Peter run to the tomb. When they hear of the resurrection, they hear something took place. The women who would not be believed or believable, suddenly John and Peter run to the tomb John, being the younger, gets there first. And he stands and he stoops down because that's what you have to do to look into that tomb. He stoops down and he looks in and our good friend Peter comes bursting by him, pushes him aside, goes right into the tomb, sees the order of the grave cloths. Something had happened. And then he walks among them for 40 days. He talks to them. He brings them to reconciliation. He restores men like Peter, who had denied him three times. He restored him three times. He demonstrated his love. He demonstrated his power. And we watch those scenes unfold. And then we come to this final scene, this glorious scene, when as he's speaking to them, a cloud takes him out of their sight. There's one more scene we're waiting for. And that's the scene when he comes back. Because you see, when he was taken, although it was public, it was before a limited crowd. And even then, in that limited crowd, the Bible says that while he was being ascended, some of them sitting there watching that still did not believe. But that other scene, that final scene that we're looking for, is when he comes back. And the Bible says every eye will see him. Every eye will, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're waiting for that scene. That scene is yet to come. But it is a glorious scene as Christians we await. Notice how the psalm opens. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The order of creation. He built the seas first, created the seas with just the word. And on the seas, he built dry land. You know that wonderful story of creation. The psalmist now is standing outside of the ark. 
He has not entered into the temple yet. The ark is inside. He is now standing outside. And what's he doing? He's acknowledging that the God to whom he sings is the creator of the universe. He's acknowledging that he owns everything in the universe, that he owns every single one of us. We are his property. We belong exclusively to him. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we belong to him. The cars you drive, the homes you live in, the grass you walk on, the sky you look at, the stars you behold, the sun that warms you, the moon that controls the tides, the oceans that we observe and, and, and admire for their majesty and glory, all of that belongs to this God we serve. He owns those cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills upon which they walk. The psalmist is now singing that. But we have a different scene that's taking place here. This is the scene of the ascension. This is what is sung before Christ enters his glory. After he rose from the dead. Where did he go when that cloud took him out of their sight? He went to be with his father. He went to his eternal glory, the glory that he abandoned when he became a man. He is now returning to that glory and heaven, heaven is asking this question. What gives you the right to come here? What gives you the right to enter here? Who is this king of glory? And what gives him the right to enter? That question is raised in verse 3. It says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Fundamentally, friends, this is raising a question for every single one of us this morning. What are the entrance requirements for being in the presence of God? You can't just go there. You can't just will it to happen. You can't approach the ark trivially. You can't enter into the presence of God's glory in a trivial way. You must come before him and answer the question, what gives you the right to come here? Like the rich young ruler who said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question, isn't it? The problem is the emphasis is upon the words, what must I do? And what did Jesus say to him? He said, keep the law. You know the Ten Commandments, don't you? You learned them in Sunday school, didn't you? Or Saturday school, whatever they called it then. You learned the Ten Commandments, just keep them. What does the man say? He says, I've kept every single one of them ever since I was a youth. That's a liar, liar, pants on fire statement if ever there was one. <laughs> because he knew he didn't. And Jesus knew he didn't because Jesus then told him, okay then, take everything you have, rich man, sell it, give it all to the poor and come and follow me. Uh-oh, we have a problem now. Suddenly, he realizes that the law requires of us a full, heartfelt, deep, 
100% commitment to God where there is no compromise. You don't try to be a Christian. You don't test it out. Let me give it a whirl. It seemed to work for John over here or Andy over here or Carol over there. It seems to be working for them. Let me give it a fling. That's not what Christianity is. God requires your heart. He requires all of you. So who may come to this hill? Who may ascend? Are there many ways to heaven? Is there just one? Do all religions take you on the same road? Are all heading in the same direction? You would expect Jesus to raise that very important question by giving us a very important answer. Are there many ways? How can I know for sure? Well, now here's the answer. He gives you the answer right there in verse 4. Who has the right to come here? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Now, do you know in that verse, you have a summary of all 10 commandments. The clean hands part, the idols part, the swearing part. When you put those, all those parts together, you have a statement of the law, the 10 commandments. There it is. If you want to enter heaven, all you have to do is keep the Ten Commandments. That's all you've got to do. Well, now just hold on a second, because we know he's not talking about some sort of hand-washing ceremony. We know he's not simply talking about some sort of ritual that we go through. Nor does he tell us this is what you can do to be saved, because elsewhere in Scripture it tells us that we can't do anything to be saved. That we cannot keep the law. That we cannot keep the commandments. That we fall short of the glory of God. But he categorically tells us the right to come here, the right to enter glory, is paid for you by keeping the law. But when you examine a little bit closer, those words are all packed pregnant with meaning. One thing you'll not note, but I'll tell you, is all of the verbs are what we call continuous predicates or continuous verbs. It means very simply, it's not something you do once. It's something that marks your life. It's clean hands that mark your life. It's not swearing by idols that marks your life. It's a pure heart that marks your life. It's not something you do once. It's something that you do again and again and again, and again, and it characterizes your life. Now in scripture, the image of clean hands means one who has not defiled his hands. The hands means very simply your actions. Hands are the things with which you do things. This is the symbol of how we act. The pure heart is what shapes the action. The heart shapes what we do. For a man, as he thinks in his heart, so he is or so he acts. So now he says, your heart must be pure, your hands must be pure all the time. Now we jump up a couple of thousand years or more to the time of Jesus, when he is now preaching the great sermon on the mount. He comes to the end of that sermon and he says, you know, all that stuff that I told you about right cheek and left cheek and one mile and two miles, 
All that stuff that I told you about how to pray and how not to pray, and he lays down the moral constitution, if you will, of the New Testament. That's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is. The great sermon on the mount, he summarizes it. He says, I'm going to give you a summary now of everything I just told you. You want to know the entrance requirements for heaven? Here they are. It's very simple. See, God makes things simple for us. Here it is. If you want to go to heaven, Jesus says, be ye therefore, anybody know the next word? Perfect. Just like God in heaven is perfect. Anybody here qualify? Anybody here qualify? Absolutely, positively not. You know and I know that you don't have clean hands. And we do not have pure hearts. And we swear by idols all the time. We worship things. We would never admit that we're worshiping those things. But we worship power. We worship money. We worship impressions. We worship acceptance. We worship feeling good about ourselves. We even worship churches. Not in churches. We worship the churches themselves. We all have our idols, our icons. And so when he raises the standard of perfection, you almost have to walk away wiping your brow and saying, then who can be saved? Who then can be saved? And when you look at the pregnancy of these words, they all amount to the same thing. God judges our actions, and he does so by the motives of our heart. A pure heart hates guile, but it hates it all the time. A pure heart hates hypocrisy, but it hates it all the time. A pure heart hates sin of every kind, but it hates it all the time. A pure heart never lifts its soul to an idol at any time. That means we worship God and God alone. There is no one else in our life. There is nothing else in our life that we put above that God all the time. And we fall short. We don't make vows or commitments that we break and we keep our vows and commitments all the time. In other words, the actions, the thought life, our worship, our deep-seated, lifelong commitment is to God and to God alone. For as the Bible says, without holiness, no man will ever see God. But wait a minute. I'm unholy. I'm imperfect. I fail all the time. I don't always have clean hands, Lord. My heart is not always pure. There are times I love hypocrisy. There are times I am a man full of guile. There are times in which I raise my idols and icons and worship them above you. I can't meet your standard. My question is, what would happen to you if you died in the midst of one of those moments where you're worshiping idols or you're speaking guile or you're in some way, shape, or form falling short of the glory of God, what would happen if in the midst of doing something like that, you died? If we could work our way to heaven, then we'd be in some serious trouble then, wouldn't we? Because at that particular moment, we're not doing things that are pleasing to God. We're not working our way to heaven at all. We're working our way to hell. And God would have every right to judge and condemn us. So he raises this question. He worships God as creator. Then he raises this question. Who has the right to come here? 
Who has the right? Now remember, it's the picture of Christ's ascension. It's the picture of Christ entering glory. But it applies to us. Because the same questions that were raised to him will be raised to you. What gives you the right to enter here? Well, now for some reason in verse 5, he jumps ahead. He basically says in verse 5, I'm going to give you a promise. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Now, I want you to mark that word blessing. You will receive blessing. Now, the correct translation is you will receive the blessing. There's a definite article there. You will receive the blessing. There is one blessing and one blessing alone of which he speaks. You will receive the blessing, the blessing and vindication from God, his savior. Now that word vindication may be translated in your Bibles as mercy or righteousness or some other aspect of it, but almost uniformly in the Psalms, that word is always translated righteousness. Here is a gift, because it says there he will receive, so something's being given to this person to whom the question is being addressed. You will receive the blessing and vindication or righteousness. Now let me draw some circles for you. Here's circle number one, right here. This is the moral requirement of God. Absolute, perfect, complete, 100% obedience and perfection every day of your life from the time you're born until the time you die, not even one little white lie in there anywhere. Those are the entrance requirements for heaven. You must keep the law. God wrote it with his own hand. He penned it on tablets of stone with his own hand. Here is what I expect of you. While he's writing the law and punctuating the verses, the people down below are breaking all 10 of them even before Moses arrives. Because our hearts are desperately wicked, so much for self-image. So here is circle number one, absolute, complete, and total perfection. Now here's circle number two. This is you. This is me. I am now facing circle number one. I am facing the entrance requirements for heaven. The entrance requirements are what? What's the word? Perfection. I'm over here. What am I? I am imperfect. Unless you're different. Everybody here qualify for circle number two? We're imperfect. Now, I can't do anything to step from this circle into this circle. Because no matter how many steps I take toward perfection, there's always going to be some sin pattern in me that's going to send me back a few steps. The closer I get to God in attempting to work my way to heaven, the further away I get. You say, that's an oxymoron. Of course it is. Because the closer we get to God, the more we see his holiness. And the more we see his holiness, the more we realize how sinful we really are. That's why everybody that approaches God in scripture is on their face. They don't even look at him. 
They can't look at him because the closer you get to God, the more you realize that you are imperfect. All right, now we got a problem. But I want to draw a third circle for you. Here's a circle over here that we call Christ. This is the one of whom this passage speaks. He comes to this earth and for his entire life, 100% of the time, completely and totally, every single day, for 24 hours a day, for 33 and a half years, even though he was in an onslaught of temptation from Satan, kept every single one of the Ten Commandments. He never failed. He never told that white lie. He never married Mary of Magdala. He never cahooted with Judas. He never, he never had some sort of a false agenda. He never, ever sinned. He was completely, what's the word now? Perfect. Now here's the beauty of the gospel. We're still raising this question. Who may go in? Only those who are perfect. Only those who are perfect. You don't qualify. But Christ is our, as the psalmist calls it, vindication. Or righteousness. All, in, all the way through the scripture, when the Bible speaks of the righteous, the measuring standard of righteousness is the law. So whenever you speak of righteousness, you're being measured against the law. It's the law that determines whether or not a person is righteous. And the only righteous one is the one who completely and totally obeys that law. So Christ does the greatest miracle of all as he did in my heart in 1968, when that righteousness of Christ came over into this imperfect soul and dressed this imperfect soul with the very beauty and majesty of God himself. So that now, when the question is raised, why should I let you in here? The answer is, I have no reason why you should let me into your kingdom. None whatsoever because I am imperfect. But please, Lord, see your son in me. See the righteousness of Christ in me. Judge me through the one who completely and totally obeyed the law. I have trusted in him and in him alone for my salvation. See me through his eyes. That's what salvation means. Now, the beauty of all of this, the wonder of all of this, is that it's a gift. I didn't earn it. And I certainly didn't deserve it. When you seek him, you will find him. He's not playing hide and seek. Don't make the gospel harder than it is. Christ did the work. Christ paid the price. Christ went to the cross. You and I could never pay that price because we are mere sinners. Sinners cannot die for other sinners and impute righteousness. We don't have that power. But as we stand here today, we have the imputed, the gift of righteousness that clothes us. And that is the entrance requirement for heaven. Now, there's a scene that we never talk about. 
There's a scene that we don't know what it looked like. We just have some hints. I want you to imagine for a moment when Jesus said to tell a story. When he said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? And when he cried out, so tell a story. It is finished. When from his lips you hear the words, Father, the same Father who had just turned his back on the righteousness of Christ, my sin and your sin laid on his shoulders so that he would bear the full weight of God's wrath on my sins and your sins so that I wouldn't have to. That great love that turned its back on his only son now is facing him again where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think that's when all of heaven broke out in Psalm 24. I think there was a scene there in heaven that even the angels did not comprehend because you see, just a few moments before, those angels had their swords out. They didn't understand. How could this be? How could this be? You are the same baby we sang over, over those shepherds. How could this be? How could you be dying on the cross? And they looked for a nod from the Father. Just nod to us. 144,000 angels with swords drawn, ready to deliver Christ from the cross with just a nod from the Father. And he let him die. The Bible tells us even the angels don't comprehend the salvation you and I do. They too are created beings, but they're here to minister to us. A salvation that we enjoy as human beings that not even the angels can understand. Imagine, just for a moment, what that scene must have been like. Imagine what those angels felt when the stone was rolled away. Imagine what they felt when he burst out of the grave. As glorious as all of that was, I can't even fathom what it must have been like when he had finished his work and went back to his father and now sits at his right hand interceding for every single one of us who know him. Who is this king of glory? Verse 7 says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now we know he's not talking about the earthly temple because there were no everlasting doors. There were no gates to be lifted. We are speaking now of an eternal gate and an eternal door. He says, lift up those gates, you ancient doors. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is? I think they're singing this. I think all of heaven is singing this. Who is this king of glory? Well, it's Chuck Betters. It's Fred, it's Dave, it's Harry. Because we worked our way there. We're the kings of glory. Yeah, right. 
Who is this king of glory? Yahweh. Jehovah God, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then he says, I got to say this again. Once isn't enough. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. That's a scene in heaven when Christ ascended into glory. And the beautiful part about all of this, every time a child of God goes home, the same song is sung. Every time a child of God who has been given that robe of righteousness goes home, that chorus, that, that heavenly resound just can't contain itself because another child has come home. That's why the Bible says precious in the sight of God is the death of his children. It's not very pretty from our angle. In fact, it's very ugly and gruesome from our angle. But from God's angle, that imputed righteousness now is given birth in a, in a fresh way, in an eternal way, as the king of glory comes in again. But this time, he's escorting me. And he's escorting you. And he's escorting all who throughout history have trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. You see, the doxology here is not a picture of an earthly temple. It's the picture of a heavenly vision. And this is where you find meaning and purpose. This is why I know the purpose of every single one of you who know Christ. I can tell you that life is but a vapor. It's a vapor. You know, when I was 21 years old and I started preaching, I would say life is a vapor. But you want to know something? I really didn't believe it. Because when you're 21 years old, you don't think life is a vapor. But the older you get, and the more suffering you see, and the greater you are impacted by the ugliness of life in this world, and your body begins to tell you, your life's a vapor. You're here today, and you're gone. And if your purpose in life is only for that mere existence, if there is nothing more, then we are like the grass of the field to be gathered and burned up because our lives are then worthless. Our lives are a vapor. The shell is going to die. And then we will truly begin to live somewhere, eternally in heaven or eternally in hell. Without the ascension, the gospel is incomplete. That is his purpose. He came to ascend so that now he can mediate. He is our advocate or lawyer. He pleads our case. He says to the father, don't look at him. You know his sins. Don't look at them. Look at me. I'm standing in front of him. Judge him through me. That's why we call it gospel. Gospel means good news. The bad news is you can't save yourself. The good news is Christ can indeed bring salvation. One final verse.
I told you at the beginning there are two passages. Here's your purpose in life. If you believe what I've just told you from this psalm, if you believe this with all your heart, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, then the scripture has some words for you. I don't want you to turn to it. I want you to mark it down, but I want you to listen to me because I don't want you to miss one word while you're turning pages. The Apostle Paul tells you, here is your purpose in life. From Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, listen to what the greatest Christian who ever lived says. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them to be garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Here's your purpose. Can you say this with Paul? Here it is. Here's the one statement in scripture that identifies every Christian's purpose. Here it is. Listen closely. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's your purpose, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and in this life, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You see, we view suffering from a different perspective when we know Christ. It is but a testing for what is eternal. It is preparing us for what is eternal. Paul says, I want to be with Jesus. And in my death, I want to be like Jesus. Probably the most comforting words we received in 1993 came from an old pastor who is now with the Lord. And he sent me a card. And on that card, a sympathy card, he had four words that are now on Mark's tombstone. With Jesus, like Jesus. Because you see, that's what death is for the believer. We're with him, and in his death, we become like him. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all of this, because you see, he was still living in the flesh, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and I think the NIV captured this word, and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, as resurrected Christians, that's where our eyes are supposed to be. 
on the prize, on the goal. We don't lose sight. Our eyes are fixed on what Christ has promised us. And we strain in this life. We struggle in the sufferings of this life in order to keep our eyes fixed on the prize. I can't imagine, as I close now with just two quick scenes, scene number one, when Jesus rose from the dead, I wonder what the kingdom of hell looked like. I could almost hear Satan saying, oh, no. Because you see, from the very beginning, God made it clear, I am going to crush your head. And he crushed his head when he died on that cross, sinless. That's why it was so important for Satan to get him to sin. But he couldn't. He failed. But even then, when he was dead and buried, there must have been a ray of hope in the kingdom of hell. But what must it have looked like when he came out of the tomb? And the final scene pertains to you. Because now we know what heaven's going to say when we go home. I think heaven is going to stop. It's just going to shut down. I believe it does this every single time a child of God goes home. Heaven stops. There is silence in heaven because something glorious and miraculous is about to happen when God says to the angel, go get my son, go get my daughter, Bring them home to me. And then we stand there before that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And our answer is simple. Because of Christ, your son, that's why you should let me into your heaven. Judge me through him. And then I believe all of heaven sings. All of heaven sings. Worthy is the Lamb. You get chills up and down your spine when a thousand of us sit here and sing worthy is the lamb. Imagine what it's going to be like when the myriads of people from all generations to the beginning of time will stand before God that day when you enter glory and sing again, worthy is the lamb. You think you got chills today. I can't even imagine what the death of us children will look like from God's perspective. But you must know him. You must know him. If you do not know him, you will never see that glory. You will stand before that God and he will see you as imperfect because there's nothing clothing you. You'll be naked in your sins and no matter how much you think you've done for him, he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But the good news, you can know him. You can know him today. I pray that no one will leave without giving your heart to Christ. Don't make it harder than it is. He did the work. You simply need to come to him and say, Lord, I recognize that I'm a sinner. 
and I repent of my sins, I know I cannot save myself. And right here and right now, I ask you to come into my heart. Clothe me with that righteousness. Give me that free gift of eternal life. And friend, if you mean that from your heart, with 100% assurance, I can say to you, your sins would be forgiven and you would be given eternal life. You would be guaranteed, guaranteed a glory to come. But you must trust him. Father, I have tried my very best today to tell these wonderful people the good news. I've poured out my soul, Lord, but it's so meaningless compared to what you did in pouring out your soul. Lord, may no one leave this place without doing what I did those many years ago on a flight of steps at the university as I knelt down there in the middle of those steps and gave my heart to you. I did not know, Lord, at that point what you had planned for me. I did not know the suffering we would have to endure. I did not know the glories of preaching the gospel. But I knew that I needed you and that my sins were many. And Lord, what a great burden you took off my shoulders that day. In seconds, I felt your release and your forgiveness. And I knew, oh God, that eternal life was mine. You've told us that in your word. You've done these things so that we may know that we have eternal life. Father, I pray that as we stand in place right now, that that person closest to hell right now would give their heart to you. We don't have the guarantee tomorrow, Lord, that we'll even wake up. I pray that you would just give them that assurance as they confess their sins and trust in you and in you alone for their salvation. May no one leave this place without doing that, Lord. Now may the grace of God the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.